Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today we are focusing on Israel and the region's energy issues, in particular the recent agreements reached between Israel and the Palestinian Authority to develop a natural gas field off the Gaza Strip coastline. To discuss that and much more, I'm delighted to welcome Eli Rettig to the pod. Thank you very much, Eli, for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. As by way of an introduction, Eli is the assistant professor at Barilan University and the head of the energy division at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies. Perhaps before we get into the issue of off the Gaza Strip coast, we could start with a, a general issue and you could just paint a, a picture overall. Uh, before the discovery of natural gas, how and where did Israel traditionally fulfill its energy requirements? So that's a good question because Israel was always very dependent on imports. And until the early 80s, it was completely dependent on oil. Oil was for everything, for electricity generation, for transportation, for the military. And the need for oil really shaped Israel's foreign policy during those years. It was looking for someone willing to sell it oil during the Arab oil embargo that started at 1948. And that shaped a big part of its desire to be close to the Shah in Iran uh, to uh, guard the straits, uh, the maritime straits to lead to it. Um, and when the Arab oil embargo started at uh, 1973 and the prices of oil went up, Israel switched to coal. So uh, all of its electricity generation uh, in the 80s, 90s uh, was completely from coal. Uh, coal came from friendlier countries. It was easier to get. No one was afraid to be boycotted by OPEC and the, and the Arab oil countries by selling coal to Israel. And so, uh, and so it managed to kind of wean itself off of its dependency, uh, some of its dependency on oil. Um, so just now, to clarify, where were those oil and gas sources from? The, Sorry, the oil and the coal. So uh, during the uh, 60s and 70s and until the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran, most of Israel's oil, up to 80% at times, came from Iran. Iran was a very important strategic uh, ally to Israel and to the U.S., and the rest of the oil came from the Sinai Peninsula, which Israel uh, uh, took in 1967 until the peace agreement in, in 79. Uh, and then in the early 80s, a Iran, the Shah of Iran fell. And so Iran completely disconnected Israel from oil. And we gave back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. So starting from the 80s, Israel was just scrambling to find oil anywhere. Anyone who was willing to sell oil to Israel, Israel was willing to take it. Uh, sometimes. Um, in return for weapons, because uh, otherwise, how can you convince, you know, a, a dictator in West Africa to sell you oil and be, and, and risk being boycotted by OPEC um, if you don't have a, much to offer it? So the connection between Israel's oil imports and, and weapons exports became very intertwined. Um, the information about where Israel gets its oil from has become a national security issue, uh, where the defense ministry is in charge of because usually where we get our oil from is also where we sell our weapons to. Um, and so basic information about where Israel gets its oil, where Israel, how much strategic oil reserve does it have, is uh, considered not something that Israel publicly publishes, although the information is there. Um, and in the 80s, it switched to coal to uh, uh, wean itself off of some of the oil. It still needs oil. 40% of Israel's current energy needs is still oil for its military, for its transportation and industry, but uh, not, not electricity anymore. And uh, the coal came from friendlier countries, mostly from South Africa during the 80s, which means that Israel was not able to join the boycott on apartheid South Africa because all of its coal came from there. 
just to show you how much Israel's dependence on energy imports really shaped its foreign policy to the point where even today in South Africa, many you know don't forget the fact that Israel was one of the few countries that didn't participate in the boycott because it couldn't. And so that's why suddenly finding gas in 2010 became such a big difference for Israel, which until then was just scrambling to find energy sources from whoever was willing to sell it to. So just in that in that context, how did the discovery of natural gas um, impact Israel's overall requirements? So today, uh, 40% of Israel's energy uh, needs is oil, right, for, tra- for transportation, for uh, military. But another 40% is now fulfilled by natural gas. Uh, the other 15% is coal and then 5% uh, solar energy. The discovery of natural gas really changed the picture, A, because it, it didn't create energy independence for Israel, because it's still dependent on oil imports, but it definitely increased its energy security. People uh, often confuse energy independence with energy security, but but the two aren't the same thing. You can get all of your energy needs from a domestic field, but then if something happens to that gas field or oil field, uh, even a natural, not even a sabotage, but just a natural event, and you all the lights go out because you're completely dependent on what field. So, so you might be independent, but you're not secure. Mm. And so Israel is much more secure by the fact that it has its own domestic natural gas resources, which is it, use, it uses mainly for electricity generation. Uh, in Europe, gas is used half of it for electricity, half for heating. Israel doesn't use gas for heating. It doesn't need a lot of heating. It mainly needs air conditioning. Right? It's hot here. Um, and so it mainly needs it for electricity generation. So if you just look at the electricity pie in Israel, not the general with all the transportation and everything, just the electricity, 70% of Israel's electricity is from domestic cheap, relatively cheap, natural gas fields, uh, which is great for Israel for in terms of uh, energy security, in terms of uh, the price of electricity. You know, in the past year and a half, Europe has been really, especially the UK, uh, has been experiencing really high electricity prices. In Israel, nothing has changed during this past year and a half. We barely felt it, the energy crisis, because we had uh, domestic natural gas uh, for consumption in long-term contracts and at a fixed price. So we really didn't experience the energy crisis uh, uh, to the full extent that Europe did. Um, and it became a boon in terms of geopolitical uh, benefits because we realized we have so much gas. We don't have a lot of, Israel didn't find a lot of gas uh, globally speaking. You know, it, We found around 950 billion cubic meters of gas just to compare that, Russia has 40,000 billion cubic meters of gas, right? Iran has 30,000. We have 950. So it's a drop in the ocean. But for us, it's a lot because Israel consumes only 12 BCM every year for 70% of its electricity. So on paper, we have enough natural gas to supply our needs for the next 70 years, seven zero. So what the Israeli decision makers decided is Let's take half of that or around half of that, 40, 40 something percent of that gas and export it first to our neighbors and then perhaps maybe in the future to Europe. And this way we can, A, enjoy the benefits of of energy security and cheap electricity prices, but also gain revenue from the exports and cement Israel's place as a as a as a as a permanent fixture in the region. Right. Uh, Sending gas pipelines to our neighbors making them uh, not dependent, but uh, um, much more 
seeing the connection with us as a much more beneficial thing for their own energy security and, and economic uh, development and really creating new geopolitical ties with the help of what you would call pipeline diplomacy. So Israel managed to create really strong ties with Cyprus and Greece in the past 10 years with this idea of, of building a pipeline between them. And people now take that for granted, but Greece used to be a very, uh, not a very, depending on the government in Greece, uh, rather confrontational with Israel. Uh, but then the gas really changed that and we and, and it created kind of this Hellenic alignment, if you if you call it that. And so the gas really became a, a huge boon pretty much to every aspect of Israel's economy, geopolitics, and security. So we'll come back to, to some to some of that in a moment. Um, but just to do a comparison on the on the Palestinian side, where are they receiving their their energy from overall? The Palestinians and I, I separate the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, right? Uh, two yeah. different. Uh, one is the Palestinian Authority; the other is Hamas. They are, com- but both are completely dependent on electricity from Israel. So they have their own. The West Bank has its own uh, electricity distribution companies, Palestinian distribution companies like uh, Jdeco and and others. But the electricity itself is coming from Israel. So uh, Israeli. Uh, electricity companies, mainly the the national Israeli electricity company, generates the electricity. It sells it to, or it, it provides it to the Palestinians, to East Jerusalem, and to the West Bank, and they distribute it. And they're in charge of uh, getting the uh, paying the bills and uh, and moving it back to Israel. So, and and Gaza is the same thing, but because Hamas is there, and because of the various rounds of violence. Uh, the current energy infrastructure over there is is completely dilapidated. They had one power plant uh, which they used for uh, with uh, oil to generate electricity. That's uh, almost um, uh, half shut down because of the different rounds of violence and bombings. So they are completely dependent on Israeli electricity. And for many hours a day, most hours a day, uh, people in Gaza don't have electricity. Uh, those that have enough money to uh, have their own private generators, diesel generators. Some of them also have solar PV panels on the rooftops, uh, but others that are less lucky have only uh, six or seven hours of electricity uh, per day, and all of that is coming from Israel. Um, The Israeli side of this is we're providing electricity to the Palestinians for barely nothing. So they don't actually pay their bills. It's very hard to collect bills. And yet uh, the electricity company in Israel, it, it doesn't cut them off although it, it loses uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year from selling electricity to the Palestinians and not uh, getting any bills paid for it. Um, but it's considered a, a humanitarian issue. You can't just disconnect them because they're not paying their electricity bills. It's a, it's a whole issue. So this idea that maybe if uh, Gaza finds its own gas, uh, it could generate its own electricity is a boon for Israel as well, because Israel loses a lot of money from selling, from, from giving electricity for free to the Gazans, to the uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. So what can you tell us about this, uh, this uh, announcement that we saw a couple of weeks ago about the gas reserves off the, the Gaza Strip coast? So the Gaza marine field is not new. We knew about it. We've discovered it uh, uh, in the 90s, right? When I say we, I mean a private company, BG Group. Um, found that gas. And uh, due to different um, negotiations and, and uh, agreements between Israel and the Palestinian Authority in, in the late 
late 90s, it was decided that this field is going to the benefit of the Palestinians. Uh, at the time, the negotiations for a two-state solution were, were rather advanced. Um, so the idea was this uh, field is going to provide for the Palestinian Authority. It's part of the Gazan waters, which at the time was under Palestinian Authority uh, rule. And that was the idea. But the problem is it's a very small gas field. It's just 30 BCM. 30 BCM is, um, is a tenth of what the Tamar field is in Israel, right? We have the Tamar, which is 300, Leviathan, which is 500. And this is just 30. So it was very hard at the beginning to get a private company to even bother to drill at the deep sea uh, and find that gas. And even and after a few years, when there was a company willing to do that, by that time, 2007, Hamas takes over Gaza Strip and Israel refuses to allow the development of the field out of concern that the revenue is going to go to Hamas and not to the Palestinian Authority. So it got stuck for many years, um, uh, pretty much frozen for around 20 years. And suddenly in the past year, we, we have a breakthrough. So when it comes to the announcement a few weeks ago that Israel has approved the development of the Gaza Marine Field, it's important to understand two things. One is why did Israel approve it? And two, the timing, why now? So in terms of the timing, there's a, there's, there's a bunch of speculations for that. Probably um, it has to do with other announcements that Israel made uh, during the same month that it, that it announced the Gaza Marine Field development, mainly the expansion of settlements. Uh, which angered uh, mainly the Americans and the Europeans, of course. And so at the same week that Israel announced that, it also announced the development of the Gaza Marine Field. And some say that maybe that can explain the timing. But it doesn't explain the deal itself, because the deal itself has been under negotiations for more than a year now. And why Israel has approved this gas is, is for a number of reasons. One is the understanding that Gaza needs some kind of economic relief. And that an uh, economically devastated Gaza is not good for Israel's security. It doesn't matter if you're right wing or left wing. It is not. It, it is a hotbed for extremist activity to the point where now in Gaza, Hamas is not even the most extreme group. There's the uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and uh, the war between these two factions in Gaza has made it even more difficult to send any kind of humanitarian aid to build any kind of infrastructure because they sabotage one another. So Israel realized, even this current government, realized that we need to bring some kind of relief there and to assist as much as possible calming the area down. And so the uh, initiative to develop the Gaza Marine Field uh, kind of uh, got backing by Egypt. Egypt said, listen, uh, if I'm going to be the one to develop the field, then I will make sure that the revenue is not going to go to Hamas. It's going to go to the Palestinian Authority. Whether that's true or not, probably not. Probably Hamas is going to get some of the revenue because otherwise it would sabotage the field. It won't allow uh, a gas field to be developed without its authority and just let, see the money go to the Palestinian Authority. So they're probably benefiting from this. Uh, Egypt, it makes sense for Egypt because um, uh, violent Gaza is not good for Egypt as, uh, either because that seeps into the Sinai Peninsula and makes it kind of a lawless place. Um, that gas that Egypt wants to develop, the Gaza Marine, most of that gas is going to go to Egypt. Egypt wants to liquefy that gas and sell it to Europe, because Europe really needs liquefied natural gas, and Egypt wants to become a hub for liquefied natural gas uh, for the entire region. A uh, small part of that gas is going to go probably to Gaza to help it generate its own electricity. For that, it needs a natural gas power plant. 
which it doesn't have yet. Um, so it's going to take a few years. It's not something, even if the deal is approved, and some say uh, it won't be, some say it's uh, Israel just wanted to pay, you know, a tax of some sort to the U.S. for its for its uh, whole uh, settlement expansion uh, announcement. But even if it is uh, actually developed, it's going to take a few years uh, for this to happen. So it's a complicated affair to uh, drill for natural gas in the deep sea. It takes uh, uh, three, four, sometimes six and seven years, depending on how complicated the field is. So we're not talking about any kind of immediate relief to uh, the Gazans. Um, but long term, this is a good development because it, um, it's, it's good for uh, Israel. It's good for the Palestinians. It's good for Egypt. For, the, for Egypt, it, it brings extra gas. For the Palestinians, relief, revenue, more energy independence. For Israel, it takes Gaza off of the Israeli grid, saves us a lot of money. But even more than that, uh, it creates this uh, uh, sense of regional stability. Because one of Israel's uh, biggest challenges is to get private companies to come and invest in, in export infrastructure in Israel. We've been trying to build a pipeline to Europe for 10 years now. We haven't got a private company that is actually willing to pay the billions of dollars necessary to do that. And one of the reasons is political instability, regional instability, security issues. So if Israel can demonstrate to the rest of the world, to private energy companies, that uh, even with political tensions, even with its worst, worst enemies, it can strike economic deals when it comes to gas, then that creates a much more inviting business environment for companies to come and, and really... Uh, get the most out of Israel's um, potential for gas. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about Israel's enemies because uh, there's a, a kind of a, a similar deal, I suppose, of sorts when Israel and Lebanon eight months ago made the uh, the agreement over the maritime border. Um, just eight months on, I wondered your assessment of uh, of, of how that so the energy resources are being developed on each side of the Israel-Lebanese divide. So, yes, and it's a very interesting uh, parallel because the government, the Israeli government that's currently in place was very opposed to that deal with Lebanon, although the deal that it now struck with, with uh, Gaza is, is very similar in many ways. Um, one of them is this idea that a third state, a third party is going to come in and develop uh, the field, right? In, this, in the Gaza case, it's Egypt. In the Lebanese case, it's going to be the French, Total, that's going to develop the field. Um, but the other similarity is it's, it, these things take a lot of time and there is no any new development when it comes to the Israel-Lebanon um, uh, issue, uh, other than the fact that now Total, the energy company, has the uh, freedom to come and explore and look whether there is gas at all. The assumption is that somewhere between Israel and Lebanon, there's a big gas field called Kana, but that's an assumption. Until you don't actually drill in the deep water, you never know for sure, is there gas there? How big is, is the deposit? Even if the deposit is this and this BCM, can you actually get that mo most of that BCM out of the ground? Um, we pro will probably not know the answer uh, this year or maybe even next year. These things take a lot of time. And so the Lebanese kind of jumped the gun and really expected this deal with Israel to translate into immediate economic relief. And that's not how it works with gas. Gas takes a lot of time. It's much more complicated than oil drilling. It takes a few years and we're not gonna see any kind of immediate development when it comes to the gas fines in Lebanon. 
And uh, hopefully they understand that and not um, right, demand any immediate revenue. Having said that, again, similar to the Gaza case, it creates an environment for private companies to come and look for more gas. So until now, it was very hard to convince private companies, both in the Israeli side and in the Lebanese side, to come and look for gas, so long as there's, there's this dispute over who actually owns the area. Now that there's a deal, we see more private companies wanting to drill on both sides. So even if we don't see any current uh, uh, advantages to the Israel-Lebanon deal, in five years from now, it will really pay off for both sides. And in the Israeli case, we're already seeing that. So in Israel, there, there has been, uh, we just concluded our fourth round of bidding for new licenses. Uh, getting new energy companies to come and look for possibly more gas. You know, Israel has found 950 BCM, but according to the U.S. Geological Survey, that's just half of the potential gas finds that we might find in this area. So th this is the fourth round. The first three rounds were a complete failure. We couldn't get any new energy companies to come and look for gas because of the political environment, because of the regulatory environment, because of the business environment. Now, it seems like the fourth round has finally been successful. We have new big companies like BP uh, coming in and saying that they want to look for more gas. And that is a direct result of Israel's ability to show these companies that it can play nice with its neighbors, Lebanon, Gaza, um, uh, and of course, uh, Cyprus, Egypt, etc. Uh, it all contributed to the success. So I mean, just to try and tie some of this together in terms of the Israeli cooperation with Egypt and also the Hellenic Triangle with with Greece and 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 Cyprus, all part of the uh, this the project of the East Med East Mediterranean um, uh, gas exploration. What is the kind of the synergy between those groups, and how much is that the East Gen East Med Forum um, active and and and, re and relevant uh, in this space? So there's no question that gas uh, has it was one of the main motivators for for this sudden kind of uh, for the creation of the East Med region, right? Nobody talked about this region as the East Mediterranean region. It wasn't a thing in the dictionary uh, until 15 years ago when suddenly we found gas and re we realized that we have to cooperate with other countries. You know, when you find oil, then you're golden. You just take the oil out of the ground, you put it in tankers, and you sell it. You ship it to the rest of the world. Whoever wants it buys it, even if someone doesn't currently need your oil. If you give it a discount, then, then they will buy your oil anyway and put it in strategic reserves because it's liquid. It's easy to transfer. Gas doesn't work like that. It's gas. So before you develop the gas field, you first need to know who's going to buy your gas. You need to build a pipeline all the way to that customer. And only when that pipeline is in place can you actually get the gas out of the ground because the gas needs to flow somewhere. So you need to secure a long-term binding contract with the other country before you can get the gas out of the ground. And so Cyprus, for example, found a big uh, gas field called Aphrodite. But it, 10 years later, it can't get the gas out of the ground because it hasn't found someone to, uh, is, that is willing to build the expensive infrastructure and commit to a long-term fixed price contract to get the gas. So when it comes to gas, you really need cooperation from the countries around you. You need them to agree to put the pipeline through them, right? Transit countries. You need to agree. You need them to agree to buy it in, in a long-term contract. So what the gas did is really force the countries of the area to think in a regional way. Uh, for Israel, that's a big 
difference. You know, Israel has always sought borders as front lines. You know, a border is a place where the enemy comes from. It's something that needs to be protected. Uh, and the Western border for Israel has always been something that you don't, that, that you least consider because historically Israel's enemies never had very strong maritime capabilities. So Israel always ignored its maritime component. The Israeli Navy has always been the least funded of the military branches. And suddenly, because we found gas in the middle of the sea, we realized we actually do have a Western border. And we actually, we are bordering a European Union member, Cyprus. Uh, and suddenly a border is no longer something that you need to defend. A border is something that you can trade through. And, uh, and that really changed Israel's kind of geospatial understanding that it is not a black sheep in a place called the Middle East. It is the, it is the strongest and most positive economic force in a new region called the East Mediterranean region. Uh, and in that is included two EU members, Greece and Cyprus. Uh, Egypt is there, and even the Palestinian Authority is there. And that's what we see. That is the what you mentioned, the East Mediterranean Gas Forum. For the first time, Israel is part of an official international forum that includes Arab states. That is the first time, other than the, than the UN, of course. And right now, it's mainly a forum that deals with how to coordinate gas exports how to convince energy companies to come and invest in infrastructure. But the most natural evolution of this East Mediterranean Gas Forum is to become an East Mediterranean Energy Forum that coordinates not just gas, but also securing oil transit, um, connecting electricity grids to one another, right? Israel and Egypt, Israel and Jordan, Israel and Cyprus, Cyprus and Greece, connecting electricity grids so you can share electricity from renewable sources with one another. Um, and coordinating uh, environmental issues. Uh, and that's a big, big, big step forward. Now, uh, with Egypt also, Israel has a, has a peace agreement with Egypt, but it's a very cold peace, mainly security. There's barely any, any tourism, there's barely any, any trade. And then the gas came and really warmed up the relations. And so um, it's, it's a very important boon for Israel. It's very important for Egypt because Israel, Egypt has 100 million people, and it needs to provide them. One of the main issues there is electricity supply, stable electricity supply during the summer. When uh, Cairo experiences uh, blackouts, people go out to the street and they protest. Even in a dictatorship, even under a military uh, rule, when you are used to uh, electricity and suddenly during the summer in Cairo, you don't have electricity, you don't have air conditioning, then you start to wonder whether your leader is as strong as he claims to be whether he knows how to run the country as he says it, right? So electricity provision is equal to sovereignty. And if you don't get electricity, it, it's equal to you don't have sovereignty. And so if Israel doesn't provide cheap, reliable gas to the Jordanians, to the Egyptians, um, and, and because of that, they experience blackouts, they experience lack of water, right? Because they need to desalinate their water. And that is also energy intensive. That creates riots that creates a potential political upheavals, and that is a huge security risk for Israel as well. So the uh, stability and, and, and uh, prosperity of the countries around Israel is an Israeli interest. And, and so the gas really cemented this idea that this is a regional issue, this is a regional challenge, and it's a regional opportunity, and Israel needs to think regionally, as well as the other countries around it. And the and the prospects of uh, of one day building that pipeline to Europe. Where what's your assessment of that? Here I'm going to be a little negative. Um, 
there's this idea that, uh, and Israel has been trying to advance this for the past 10 years of building a pipeline called the East Med pipeline, uh, all the way from Israel through Cyprus and into Greece and maybe even to Italy to supply uh, cheap uh, gas. The problem with this pipeline is that it is a very ambitious pipeline. And I don't see a lot of economic sense in building this unless the governments or the EU decide that this is a security issue, that this is meant to diversify gas away from Russia. And so the EU is willing to lose money on this pipeline, then only then it will be built. But currently, private market looks at this pipeline and says, this is way too ambitious. Because if we build this pipeline, it's going to be the deepest, longest underwater pipeline in the world by a huge margin. You know, the uh, East Mediterranean is a, is a very deep bathtub. And when you build an underwater pipeline, it needs to go all the way to the bottom of the sea. Now, uh, take, for example, Nord Stream 2, right, between uh, Germany and, and Russia. That goes mm. from 50 meters to 200 meters to the bottom of the sea. So the deepest point is 200 meters. If we in Israel build this pipeline to Greece, it's going to need to go 2,000 meters to the bottom of the, of the sea. We've never built a pipeline this deep ever anywhere in the world. It's space technology. It requires drones. It, uh, human beings can't be so deep uh, underwater. Now, this means that we're going to have to pay a lot for this pipeline. It also means that it limits the diameter of the pipeline, right? Because if it's, it's if the diameter is too wide, it will collapse to itself because of the pressure of the sea being so deep. So it also limits, so the diameter is limited. So it limits how much gas you can actually get through that pipeline if you build it. Um, Adding to that a bunch of other issues, like the bottom of the sea near Crete, near the island of Crete, is volcanic. So it moves. It just presents so many engineering challenges. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean we can't build the pipeline. We can build it. It's space technology, but we have space technology. You know, We've sent a rover to Mars and a man to the moon. But it means that we're going to have the Greeks paying a very high price for this gas uh, in order to justify the cost of the pipeline. Now, just to give a sense of proportion, to make a profit out of this pipeline, we need to sell it to Greece. There, there needs to be a buyer in Greece willing to commit to a long-term 10, 15-year binding contract to buy this gas at a fixed price of $8.5 per MMBTU. Now, to give a sense of scale, before the Russian invasion to Ukraine, energy prices, gas prices in that area in Europe were between 2 to $4 per MMBTU. Now, because of the Russian invasion to Ukraine, now it's $25 per MMBTU. But that doesn't mean that once the war ends, hopefully soon, right, um, prices will remain $25. Probably not. They'll probably fall back to $4. And we're asking for $8.5. Now, the, what the buyer in Greece or in Italy or anywhere in Europe are saying is, yes, right now it makes financial sense to buy a gas for $8. But if we build this pipeline, it will take five years to build this pipeline. In five years from now, will we still need this gas? Will we still be willing to pay $8 per MMBTU for this gas? Is there still going to be a war in Ukraine? Is there still going to be Russia as we know it today? Is it still going to be ruled by Putin? Why wouldn't we buy gas from Russia if it's not the same Russia in five years? So there's a lot of unknowns here. And that these unknowns make the private market very jittery. And until the private market gets uh, guarantees, solid guarantees from the governments of the European Union that saying, we are willing to fund this, we are willing to subsidize this, we are willing to cover any losses you might experience from this pipeline, then this pipeline is probably never going to be built. Now, this doesn't mean that there, are other, that there aren't other options, 
for example, liquefying the gas. One option that you can do is take the gas, you freeze it to uh, uh, minus 170 degrees, turn it into a liquid with an LNG terminal, put it in an LNG tanker, which is a huge refrigerator, ship it to Europe where they regasify. Um, the problem with that and is- that's, that's, the, that's the capacity that Egypt has, right? Right, so Egypt has two LNG facilities. The, the problem with that is that it quadruples the price of gas when compared to dry gas coming through a pipeline. But right now it makes a lot of sense to diversify away from Russia. There's a lot of competition and so the prices are lower. But okay, so let's say Israel understands and Greece and, and Cyprus says, we need to liquefy it, this is the only way. Egypt says, well, I already have two LNG terminals, so just use my terminals. Why do you need to build a new terminal, right? Why, why do you want to compete with me? Egypt wants to be the LNG hub of the East Med. So it says, if you have gas, just bring it to me and I will sell it as LNG. Um, this is not ideal for Israel. Now, Israel already does that. So Israel sells its gas to Egypt. Egypt liquefies it and sells it to Europe. But that's, that, that, that is not beneficial to Israel that much because Israel sells the gas to Egypt at a fixed price. Then Egypt decides what it wants to do with the gas, whether it wants to liquefy that gas or just use it for domestic use. That's Egypt's concern. So the fact that Egypt is liquefying the gas, selling it to Europe at a huge profit, is a completely Egyptian benefit. Israel isn't benefiting from this at all. It's still selling at the same price to Egypt. Um, and so, and, and now Egypt wants Cyprus to do the same. It wants Cyprus to build a pipeline to Egypt and, and sell to Egypt at a fixed price where Egypt will make the profit. Um, and so what Israel and Cyprus want to do is, is take a little more control over this, uh, over the, this industry and build their own LNG whether it's going to be a land-based LNG terminal in Cyprus or maybe a floating LNG, which is a ship that has an LNG capacity on, on the ship, um, is probably something that Israel, the Israelis, the Cypriots, the Greeks are, are really thinking uh, ahead towards as, as, a, as not a, to replace Egyptian LNG capacity, but to supplement it so that Egypt doesn't have all of the power when it comes to LNG uh, exports. I want to just ask uh, another question. If we look from, we've been discussing kind of the, uh, the East Med, but if we look to Israel's other borders, there's a lot of speculation at the moment about a potential um, normalization deal with Saudi Arabia. Um, just from an energy perspective, if you can kind of, first of all, talk to Saudi Arabia's focus on transitioning away from their reliance on fossil fuels to other, to, to other forms of energy and what role Israel could potentially play in that process. Right, so Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, sorry, and the rest of the Gulf states are undergoing a major economic uh, diversification efforts. They realize that um, oil at the end, of their economy is based on the, on the production and export of oil, and uh, they can't live off of the fat of oil for long. Now, when I say long, they're still going to export oil for the next 20 to 30 years. It's not like uh, they need to diversify their economy by tomorrow. Uh, we're still very much dependent on Saudi oil. That's not going anywhere. Uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis, the, 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 the Qataris, they have the cheapest oil in the world, the finest grade of oil. It's the easiest to produce. So even at $12 a barrel, they still make a profit. So even if we get to the point where demand for oil starts to decline, and currently, we haven't seen that. Every year, we, we consume more and more oil every year. But the idea is by 2030, we'll reach a plateau and things will start going down. 
we'll move to electric cars, we'll start using hydrogen, et cetera. And so in by 2050, we will demand much less oil than we are demanding now. So instead of 100 barrels of oil every day, which is today's consumption, it will go down to 40 million barrels of oil every day by 2050, which is uh, a lot. But keep in mind that the Saudis are still going to produce oil by then because they have the cheapest oil in the world. They're going to produce plastic, et cetera. So it's not like they're going to collapse tomorrow. Having said that, they're going to earn much less from the oil in 20 years from now than they earn now because people will, the, the world is, is not going to need oil as much. And so they need to diversify away. Now, until that happens, and because they have the cheapest oil in the world, they say, okay, in 30 years from now, people will not need oil as much. But the oil that they do need, the 40 million barrels of oil that are still going to be used around the world, not for cars, but for plastics, for rubber, for cement, for asphalt, for, for the things that we don't have a replacement for and hydrogen can replace, that oil is going to come from us. We are going to be the last man standing. We, the Saudi Arabians, we, the Emiratis, we're going to be the last oil exporters in the world because we have the cheapest oil and there are certain things that oil can do that nothing else can do. To, to do that, to secure their role as the last man standing, they need to free up, up as much oil as possible. They need to free up as much oil and gas to sell to the rest of the world so they can uh, remain the last man standing. Now, the problem with these countries is the domestic population, which is very wasteful and very demanding. So a third of the oil that the Saudis are producing every day is wasted on the local population. When I say wasted, I mean it's given for free. It's or barely free. Uh, it's, sub, it's heavily subsidized. Fuel is heavily subsidized in Saudi Arabia. Electricity is heavily subsidized. Water is heavily subsidized. It's part of the contract between the Saudi family and the, and the citizens that we subsidize everything from cradle to grave and you don't get a voice, right? Uh, this is not a hmm. democracy. So um, a third of that oil is wasted on the, on the domestic population. And, and that, that and, you know, with Saudi Arabia, that's a lot of oil. Saudi Arabia produces 10.5 million barrels of oil every single day, and 3 million of that is wasted on the local, uh, right? And, and, and the Saudis are very, very wasteful. Every Saudi has an SUV. They turn on their air conditioning in the morning, go to work, come back, the house is nice and cold because they don't have, they don't need to pay for anything. So what the Saudis want is to diversify their electricity sector and their automobile sector to release more oil into the market. So they want other technologies that will help them produce electricity and move their cars and their trains and their trucks without using oil and gas, right? And right now, all of uh, Saudi's electricity is oil and gas. Uh, same thing with the Emiratis and the other Gulf states. So they want to invest in solar panels. They want to invest in wind turbines. They want to invest in uh, nuclear reactors that can generate electricity. It is not done for environmental reasons. It's done to free up that oil and gas uh, to export. So they can remain the last man standing. It will give them another at least decade to breathe. So they will have time to diversify their economy even more. And that's where Israel really can shine, right? It can A, provide it with the technologies it needs to be more energy efficient, to help it with the hydrogen needs. Uh, water desalination is also a major issue in the Gulf and water desalination is very energy electricity intensive. And Israel has very efficient water desalination technology that it can sell. So we have the type, now ironically, the reason why we're so good at this 
the reason why we're so energy efficient and we have solar power that we've been developing since the 50s is because of them, because they've put us under an embargo since 1948. And we were looking for, you know, renewable solutions to wean ourselves off, off of oil. And now the, the tables have turned and they need the technology that we've developed because they embargoed us. Um, and, and, and that's a great opportunity to start selling Israeli technology to these countries. But it's even more than that. So try to think about the map, right? Uh, let's say now because of the war in Ukraine, um, Europe doesn't isn't buying oil from Russia. It's supplementing that the oil that it's not buying from Russia by buying the oil from the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Qataris. That oil needs to tra traverse a very difficult and complicated uh, maritime straits to get to Europe, right? So oil from Saudi Arabia and from the and from the Emirates needs to go through the Straits of Hormuz, it needs to go through the Straits of the Bab el-Mandeb, it needs to go up the Suez Canal, and only then it reaches Europe. Throughout all of these places, you can have bottlenecks, you can have accidents, and mainly you have Iranian threats to uh, uh, seize tankers, to blow them up, etc. Creates a lot of security issues, it raises insurance uh, prices. The best way for the Saudis and the Emiratis and the other Gulf states to get their oil to Europe without going through all these treacherous treacherous path and, and exposing themselves to Iranian threats is to build a land corridor to Israel. So if they can, if the Saudis, the, the Emiratis and the Saudis can build a, a, a infrastructure corridor, right? An oil pipeline, a gas pipeline, which will later turn into a hydrogen pipeline, electricity grids, railway and highway from the Emiratis through the Saudis, through, through Jordan and into Israel, then they have a, a much cheaper and much safer route to get to the to to some of their main clients in Europe, and so Israel is is really touting that it's it's trying to use both its geography, right, its connection to the to the to the East Med, and its technology to woo uh, the Saudis into a normalization deal, uh, and and I hope it works. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the Saudis have their own conditions. Uh, which mainly have to do with U.S.-Saudi relations and, and little to do with Israel-Saudi relations, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Right. I mean, one one of those. And this, I'll, I'll end with this if it's okay. I, I don't know if it's your your area of expertise as well in terms of nuclear power, but one of the conditions they're talking about is for Saudi Arabia to establish a civilian nuclear project. Just from the a very narrow view of Israel's concern over the introduction of nuclear power into the region, is is something like a civilian project able to be safeguarded? Is this something that is a that is that is, that is something that Israel could live with? Do you think? So that's a good question, and it really depends on the specifics of the deal. So keep in mind, uh, a nuclear reactor that generates electricity makes a lot of sense for the Saudis. You know, it, it, it generates electricity that frees up oil; it pays for itself. And the Emiratis already have a nuclear uh, power plant. The Emiratis have a South Korean nuclear power plant, and it's getting expanded in the next few years. And Israel doesn't oppose that. And the idea, the way that the Emiratis got it, is because they promised that they are not going to enrich their own uranium. So the South Koreans are going to uh, enrich the uranium themselves. They're going to supply for the uh, power plant. They're going to deal with the pollution, with the, sorry, with the... Um, uh, radioactive material that gets out of the nuclear plant so you can't make a bomb out of it. The Emiratis don't touch it at all. It's kind of this golden standard, this golden model where the nuclear power plant is a black box where the Emiratis are not touching it. It's the South Koreans are, that are doing it. 
they're generating the electricity and the Emiratis are just enjoying the electricity. That type of model can work with the Saudi case as well. Problem is that the Saudis are insisting on enriching their own uranium. They want their own enrichment program, their own domestic enrichment program that they say is for research purposes. But that's the main issue of contention. If all they wanted was just the nuclear power plant, then they would have gotten by now. And Israel would not have objected just like it didn't object with the Emiratis. But the fact that they want to enrich their own uranium is a cause for concern. Because if you want uh, to enrich uranium for a nuclear power plant just for electricity generation, then you need to enrich uranium uh, to uh, to 3%. That's all you need. It's rather easy. If you want to make a bomb, you need a 90% level of enrichment. It's a completely different technology. Now, really, if you don't want a bomb, there's no reason to insist on enriching your own uranium. It's, It's rather... It, it, it's a cause for concern for Israel, for the Americans, that the Saudis want to do this uh, by themselves. The issue is, and so, and so, and so the U.S. Has, has resisted this until now. The issue is that the Saudis have demonstrated that they can get this capabilities anyway, and they can get it from the Chinese. And according to different reports, they already have some capacity from the Chinese. And now the U.S. needs to decide if the Saudis are going to get this capacity anyway, it right. might as well be us doing this, us meaning the West. It could be the South Koreans, it could be the French, it could be the Americans, so long as it's not the Chinese or the Russians. And so the U.S. is slowly realizing this is probably inevitable. So if it is inevitable, let's make the most out of it and let's squeeze a normalization deal through it. Um, whether that happens or not is, a, is, a, is, an, is an issue that Israeli policymakers are going to have to contend with. But this idea that Israel is going to be the last decision maker, the one that decides for Saudi Arabia whether it gets nuclear capacities or not. I don't think Israel has that power. I don't think it wants to be portrayed as the one that blocked nuclear uh, power plants from the Saudis. Uh, and so it's a big dilemma for Israel. Absolutely. Well, Eli, thank you so much for fascinating uh, a briefing on all of those energy issues. Very much appreciated. I was happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.